All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back from uh, Between the Tees. Uh, this is your host, N.A. Walters Jr. Uh, sorry for the little bit of uh, sabbatical I took. Uh, we made some changes to how we're going to be able to be doing uh, this podcast. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start doing uh, more interviews and discussions with uh, different people. And uh, instead of just having the same two guys on that we've always had in the past. Uh, so today, uh, with your lucky uh, host here, you get to talk with Maria Palazzola from St. Louis Golf Lessons. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Good. Minus the fact that it's cold and it's getting wintry here in St. Louis, Missouri. It's kind of dreary, but next week looks a little bit better. We're getting some 60s, I think, for the next 10 days. I know, we can only hope, right? Right. So, Maria, can you kind of give some of our listeners uh, who you are and uh, why I decided to bring you on? <laughs> well, I don't know why you decided to bring me on. <laughs> well, what the heck? But no, um, so I, uh, you know, I think I'm your average average golfer. I, I grew up in St. Louis here and uh, played, um, you know, a reasonable amount of junior golf and had some success as an amateur, went in like the, the St. Louis district title twice in the state amateur um, went on to play golf at the University of South Alabama, D1 golf. Nice. And um, after that, I turned pro. I did a, a short stint in the mini tours, really short, about six months. I uh, kind of decided it wasn't wasn't for me, the lifestyle, you know, the traveling and right. all that. And I was engaged to be married, so I was kind of anxious to get, you know, get married and get started with that part of my life. And um, played a few, uh, like a handful of tour events after that that I either qualified for or got like a sponsor's invite. So... I like to tell people I, I did get behind the ropes, but I didn't do much good once I got there. Uh, but I did it, and then um, kind of fell into teaching. I never, I didn't grow up ever thinking I'd become a teacher. But um, uh, my ex-husband was actually a really, really good teacher, well known. He was a teacher of the year in his PGA section at like age twenty-seven. Oh wow! Um, and um, you know, he was a good mentor, and uh, we were living in Myrtle Beach at the time. So I'm like, what am I going to do down in Myrtle Beach other than teach golf, right? So right. Um, we went from there to uh, Chicago, where I became the director of golf for the Michael Jordan Golf Center, which was, uh, as you can imagine, Michael was still playing at that time in the late 90s. So that was <laughs> hugely popular, uh, brand new, beautiful uh, facility. And so anyway, I did 10 years up there, and then I moved back to St. Louis and decided to, to restart here in my hometown. And um, that's when I built out St. Louis Golf Lessons and uh, started getting to the point where I was, um, you know, busy enough as a teacher myself. I was like, I got to figure out how to scale this. I need more help and started uh, hiring other teachers. So now we're up to uh, six teachers in six locations. Oh, wow. So. That's awesome. Um, minus your ex-husband, who was your biggest mentor as far as learning philosophies and things like that? Yeah, so... Um, so Michael Hebron, if you know that name, uh -huh. um, he was a national uh, teacher of the year, I think in 92, 1992. And I was uh, in college at the time and uh, went down to uh, uh, Boca Raton and took a lesson from him. And um, I always kind of called him the mad scientist because he's, he's kind of far out there. You know, he's, he's uh, super smart, but probably has done more research um, in learning and uh, and motor learning uh, and, and just the way the mind works than I think mm -hmm. almost any, any teacher in the game. Um, and he also was kind of from, uh, I think, a little bit of that golfing machine background. Um, so he's got a little bit of that in him. And I just kind of, you know, he, he had some great books early on for new teachers, I think even for the average player. 
um, to pick up uh, his book, See and Feel, The Inside, Move the Outside, mm-hmm. um, is a great, I think, a great teaching manual for anyone getting, you know, getting into the game and wanting to learn. And so, um, you know, I learned from him. Um, I, I took the advice uh, that I was given early on as a teacher, too, to kind of come up with a, in my mind, what I thought the perfect golf swing looked like. So if it was like Hogan swing, say, you know, what does that swing look like? And so when I'm out teaching, um, uh, you know, looking at a student in front of me, well, h- how is what they're doing different from what I think would, would be ideal? And, and early on, you know, I was using video early on, but we weren't using it that often. That was back mm-hmm. with a handheld camcorder with a VHS tape. <laughs> right. So I was probably 5% of us in the country were probably using video at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you teach without video? You know, you have to have that sort of vision of what you think the swing should look like in different positions and, and, uh, you know, what are the top 10 or 12 things that moves that people do that aren't ideal um, that you'd like to change. And um, so anyway, so fast forwarding, when I got to Chicago, um, one of my best friends is John Elliott Jr., who was one of the original Golf Digest instructors. Oh, okay. And uh, I taught, I'm kind of an idiot when I'm teaching because I'm so focused on, on who's in front of me and what's going on. Right. Like I even tell like my staff that works for me, I'm like, I really have no idea what you're telling your students. I'm not paying attention to what you're doing, so don't worry about me. I'm so focused on what's going on. So I, I spent, I think, five years teaching beside John and didn't really kind of watch him or learn from him, but I was always busy. You know, right. I had one student after the other coming through. But um, towards the end, I did pick up on some of the things he was doing, and then we did a couple of golf schools together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and John is just probably one of the most creative uh, individuals with teaching um, that, that I've ever known. And you know, a guy that doesn't need video, doesn't need technology, um, but he knows how to how to speak to people, how to put on a good lesson, put on a golf school, um, and um, and I think he's been a great influence. So you kind of have more of the the mental scientific side maybe from Hebron, right? But you've got more of the creative, um, entertaining side from from John. Oh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, as you know, you know, because we both grew up in this game. It's changed so much from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s and even today, uh, not just with technology, but with just swing mechanics in general. Uh, Can you give me a little insight on on how you've seen that gradual change? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's interesting because, like, when you look at putting, you know, I grew up being taught putt on a straight path. Right. And Pels came out, you know, in the late 80s and 90s, and he was all about the straight line, you know, and, and putting. And then now everybody's kind of promoting the arc, you know. And so I don't know that there's one perfect way. There's just different ways. And, and mm-hmm. there's definitely things in golf that become trendy. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't remember early on that there was a lot of methods, method teaching going on. Right. Or, or systems. I mean, David Ledbetter was really big early on, um, mm-hmm. and so a lot of us followed, you know, what he taught. Um, but then there became a lot of method teachers and, and a lot of models that people, you know, pushed all their students into. You right. Know? Um, and uh, you know, one of the best teachers out there, I think, is Mike Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of his followers, though, every single student that came across the tee, they were doing the the laws of golf test and finding out if they were a leverage arc or width swinger and and kind of pushing them into that mold, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and then of course, as you know, stack and tilt, you know, became really, really big. And, and there's people arguing both sides of that, you know, right. people saying, oh, they've ruined all these tour players. And then people saying, oh, but these tour players were successful because of them. And, um, you know, I think I personally, 
Um, when people ask me, what do you teach? Or like in Hank Caney, huge swing plane person. Right. Um, you know, I, I've never had a, a method or a system. I, I mean, every single lesson, even if it's with the same student that I've worked with 10 times, I don't know what's going to happen in that lesson when I right. get out there. You know, it kind of depends on what's going on that day. Right. Um, I mean, I certainly want to see the golf club on plane. I certainly want to see a square face throughout the swing if we can get it that way. I love to see good balance, um, you know, good use of the of the legs and lower body for power. Right. Um, but I don't really force people into a specific model right. you know, or a specific swing. Uh, but uh, and to further your answer your question, you and I were talking about technology earlier, and um, you know that has come full circle since I oh, started. Oh, it's amazing! Like I said, you know, handheld VHS tape to now we can just film them on our phones and set an analysis right there you know and then of course launch monitors we had like the swing speed right little, little radar things um back in the early 90s but uh, now it's pretty incredible with what's out there it is and uh going into like that method t- teaching or pushing students into well this is how i expect the swing to be um I'm hopeful that it's starting to really kind of gravitate away from that simply because everybody's different. Their body structures are different. Um, You know, the way I'm going to swing is going to be pretty different than a guy who's 6'4", 240. Um, But like you say, you know, we're always looking for specific things in a swing that we want, and how they achieve it is somewhat immaterial. Um, Matt Wolf is a perfect example of just a crazy looking swing but when he actually starts that down swing he's so on plane that club is perfectly squared and he's rotating beautifully but if you were just to look at it on a tv you're like how the heck does that guy hit a golf ball exactly yeah and and i think it's it depends on who you're teaching right i mean if you're teaching a young aspiring you know mini tour player um, they're probably going to want the perfect they're probably going to want their swing to be as perfect as it can be you know it's going to look perfect on video um but for those of us that teach the vast majority of players from, from juniors to seniors, you mm-hmm. know, beginners to pros, um, it's really like, what does that person in front of you want? What are they here for? And it, right. especially if you're a pro teaching, say, at a private club. I mean, 80%, if not more, of the people we teach, they just want their ball flight corrected. Right. They, they want to know it's going to get in play and it's going to be predictable and they're going to be able to bring their scores down and lower their handicaps. They don't care what their swing looks like, the majority of people. Right. You know, so um, I, I think a good instructor can work simply off of ball flights like the old days. We don't need video. We don't need you know technology to tell right. us what's going on. We can see what's happening with the ball flight and know how to fix their swing to you know get the ball flight they desire. Right, and I think that's where technology kind of gets in the way of what we try to do sometimes. I mean, you know, it's hard because you see it, you know, our students – or the, the golfing public in general, you know, they, they go on the golf channel, they see all of this technology being used, and they're like, well, I need, I need that. Right. And it's really, I mean, it's really more geared towards those competitive players who are trying to fine-tune certain numbers, uh, certain aspects of their game, right. where, this is going to sound crazy to you guys, but two degrees of a closed club face is a huge deal to them as – to a 24 handicapper, I'd be happy if I got it to a two degrees close club face and they were hitting it that straight. Um, And that's where technology on a whole can get out of whack. 
yeah. where the student wants all of this technology, but they don't really need it for right. what they're trying and, to do. And they really don't know why they want it. And, right. and a perfect example, and I just shared this with someone not too long ago, is I have options. So when people book a lesson with me, they can add the body track pressure mat. They can add the launch monitor. And mm -hmm. I often get a brand new student who I've never seen before, and most of the time they're a relatively new player, and they've checked off all of those things. And so I haul all that equipment out there and get it all set up, and they come out, and I'm always like, okay, so, so what were you looking for with the launch monitor? Or why did you want to add, oh, I don't know. You know right. It looked cool, so I just thought I'd do it all. And right. I, and I talk them out of it almost always on the first lesson. I'll say, look, you know, we got to get to know each other. We're going to have a discussion here. I'm going to need to watch your ball flight. Um, we're going to you know, get you on video. The first thing is I want to give you a good thorough analysis of what's going on in your swing mm -hmm. and come up with a game plan. And we only have an hour here. Right. And so I always use the data to just back up what we already see on video. So right. once I get someone's swing to where I think it's you know, pretty good or going to stay, then I'll say, okay, now let's bring the launch monitor out now and check that club path and check the face and just have it back up what we think we're seeing on the video. Right. Because you, know, you can see what's going on. Uh -huh. you, know, you don't need the, the, the machine to tell you. And same thing with the pressure mat. We already know you had a bad weight shift. <laughs> right. You know, we've been working on it. And, uh, you know, and let's, let's, but sometimes I do find, especially with that, like the pressure mat, I do find that I have had students where I've worked with them on a handful of lessons mm -hmm. on something like weight shift. And then it's like, once they see those numbers, it's like it just ch ch smacks them in the face. Right. And then, oh, okay. And now they decide to change it. So, right. And, and I don't think it's that they really didn't believe me before. They didn't see it on video. Something about seeing the numbers, it just makes them you know, realize and it, it, this is something I really need to do and, and they're helps it soak in. They're probably an engineer too. Yeah. Uh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but even with those pressure mats, I like the pressure mat a lot. Um, I use it pretty frequently um and then even if it's just a couple swings just to show them uh what they're actually doing versus what they're feeling right. you know sometimes you know you tell a student hey you're really rolling out on your back foot and they're like well i feel like i'm on the inside of my foot and you throw them on the pressure mat and they're like oh my god i really am on the outside yeah. of my foot yeah uh so i like those parts of the uh of that pressure mat and the technology in general but like we were kind of discussing, uh, there's times where us as teachers on a whole, uh, we sometimes get bogged down in, into those numbers. And um, I personally believe, uh, hopefully you agree with me on this, is golf is really more of a field game in general anyway. So to rely on numbers all of the time is never not necessarily a great thing to do, especially right. when you're trying to teach. Like I said, when you're getting into competitive golfers, PGA guys, high-level junior golfers, those little intricacies, they matter immensely. But the majority of the people that we teach, those numbers, as long as you get them in a realm, mm -hmm. right? If we can get them in a realm, they're going to hit great golf shots. So um, trying to... to shy away from technology but also use it, utilizing it in the proper fashion is super important right right and i think people get uh too caught up in driving range practice and don't play enough golf right you know and that's one of the things i really stress with that my parents of my competitive juniors or my wannabe competitive juniors is well they they never play right like a lot of these kids play their high school season don't pick up a club 
until the high school season the next year. Right. And that's not the way to get better. You know, I'm wondering why they don't break 75 or You can take all lady. the lessons you want. You can keep paying me every week. But right. if they don't play the game, they're not going to get better. You right. play. And when we uh, talk about practicing, playing is so important. I love uh, – to me, I, I, I'd rather be on the golf course teaching than sometimes being on that course or on that driving range and working on mechanics. Because I always tell my students, I can tinker with you all day, every day. Right. But that's not going to make you better. Yeah. You getting on the golf course is what's going to make us better. Right. And um, with practice, you know, everybody's like, I've been to the, I went to the range five times this week. I'm like, oh, awesome. What'd you do? Well, I just sat there and hit everything as hard as I possibly could. And did you work on any of the, the techniques? Did you do any of the drills? Well, I did the drills for about five minutes. Right. It's like, oh, that's awesome. And then you come back, and this is just an FYI for all students or golfers out there. Uh, as teachers, when you come and see us after you had a lesson, and you say, we ask you, hey, how, how did you practice? Well, I did a little bit, and I didn't do any of the drills. What frustrates us is now this hour that you just booked with us, we're going to rehash yeah. everything that we just did the, the week before. And then that's where you, as a student, you're like, I'm not getting any better. Drills, we give you guys the drills for a reason. Not for us to sit there and say, oh, look, you're topping it, but you're doing great. We're looking at technique. And one thing that I really stress with my students is, there's times where I don't care where the ball goes. That's, that's not the important part right now. You have to get the technique down. Every time we change a motion in your swing, timing is thrown through the door. And we got to wait for that timing to, to walk right. back in that door. Right. Yeah. And whether that's 50, you know, a, a range session, two range sessions, I can't give time frames. It's a matter of what you utilize that practice session for. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things I tell my students, uh, which is I think where you were going with that as well, is the ball gives false feedback. Mm -hmm. So you can be doing, you know, five or six things wrong, mm -hmm. putting them together and hitting a beautiful golf shot. But those five or six compensations aren't always going to be there because compensations right. aren't consistent. They're not always going to no. be there. So one day one of them doesn't show up, and now you can't hit, you know, the side of a barn. And then, you know, the flip side of it is, you could be doing a great swing, much better than the swing you were doing, and still not quite hitting the ball great because something else is wrong in your swing. And that, right. that's one thing that does sort of frustrate me as a, as a teacher is I'll get some on the lesson tee and I'll say, okay, all we're going to do today is we're going to work on your takeaway and then getting you to the top of the swing. So focus on this side of the swing because it happens first. We know you've got some errors in your downswing, but we're not going there yet. Right. You know, and they'll hit a few shots. And they'll go, oh, well, do I need to turn my hips more? Or am I not shifting my weight? Or right. am I not? So, whoa, 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 don't, don't go there. <laughs> you know, you haven't even gotten this down yet. Right. So people always want to jump ahead. And, and they're just reading the ball flight. And I'm like, you're doing great. You're making a great swing. Just keep going. Just ignore the ball. Right. So the ball doesn't really give us the answers always that we want. And, and especially now that we're heading into winter, mm -hmm. I stress with all my students, the ball is not part of your golf swing. Right. So you don't need to go to the range. To practice you right can go through all of this in your living room or your basement just I say just give me 10 minutes a day I just ask for that commitment right. club in your hand going through the motions you'll get better so much more quickly than if you just throw your clubs in your trunk and then don't make it back to the range for five days right and then you're kind of starting all over on all those fields right and uh, yeah to that point uh, I tell every one of my students I want 70 minutes for seven days there you go and that's not going to the range 
uh, everything I, we do can be done at home without a golf ball. And in fact, sometimes it's way better, if not most of the time, way better to do without the golf ball because now you're worrying more about the technique, more worrying about the feel of what we're trying to get you to do instead of worrying where that ball flight goes or where that ball goes. Once you immediately start worrying about where that ball goes, everything just goes out the window. Right. Any technique that we did work on, gone. Uh, because you're too worried about where the ball's going to go. That's where I kind of like, enjoy teaching uh, in the simulator during the wintertime. Because um, I personally believe that the brain doesn't recognize that ball flight as real. So I have, I love it when we go in there and like, my students think I'm crazy, number one. But when they when they do top it, or they do hit it off to the side of the of the simulator and I'm like that was awesome I'm like how do you think that that was awesome I literally hit the black wall on the side I said no but your technique was perfect yeah, yeah. Uh, but you have to understand that that technique is not going to just show up in five minutes right. you know it right. takes hundreds of swings to get that to right. be consistent and that's the hard part with golf is that Everybody thinks it's, oh, I'm going to go get a lesson, and bam, I'm just going to be immediately better. Yep. And then they get scared when they show up and see us, and they leave, and in their mind, they're hitting it worse. Right. And that's the conversations that we have with everybody, and we can say it blue until we're blue in yep. the face, uh, that we always do things for the greater good of the game, yeah. of your game. It's not going to be short-term. This is long-term stuff. So if you're wanting to get better in the middle of July and expect to start shooting really low scores by the beginning of August, it's just on a whole not realistic. Yeah, yeah I always tell them, you know, tour pros that do this 40 to 50 hours a week, mm -hmm. say it takes 12 to 18 months to really incorporate a change into their, into their swing right. and lock it in. Right, and I remember, um, I guess when Tiger was going through his changes – um, they were making comments, uh, the tour, or the guys that the commentators, they were basically saying, here's Tiger's swing on the driving range and here's Tiger's swing on the, course. On the golf course. <laughs> yeah. And you can see a distinct difference because right. he didn't have that trust yet to take it to that sure. golf course. Sure. And he's one of the best players to ever play the game. So right. as much as we, the second best in my opinion, or second best. <laughs> Who's your first? Well, Nicholas. Of, oh, of course, Nicholas. Yeah. Um, but to to get back to that point, it's you know the expectations are just so great, and when you try to, uh, at least with my students, I get them onto a, a, a level playing field of understanding. Hey, if you're wanting to do this, this is what it's going to take. Right. If you're not willing to commit to it, don't waste your money. Um, and that's for everybody, and that's not being harsh. We're not trying to be harsh to anybody wanting to learn this game. We're not trying to shy you away from learning this game. We want you to learn this game. But have realistic expectations. Have realistic goals when you uh, come and see uh, the two best uh, teachers in St. Louis, yeah. obviously. Uh, but have your, have your goals. And, uh, you know, I always start off, whether you have five lessons with me, all-year lessons, whatever the – the deal is you have to have goals and I always make my students give me five goals one thing that I do not make them give me is consistency yeah because every single golfer wants consistency the first thing said, <laughs> right so, oh, where are you or why'd you come out today or why'd you come out today and 
say, well, I just need to get more consistent. Right. I've never heard that one before. Yeah. That's what I say. No one's ever said that. Right. Yeah. So I always tell them, I was like, I know your number one is going to be consistency, so do not put that on your five goals because right. if we are doing any of the other five goals, consistency is going to show up. Yeah. You know, obviously but, we're going to work really on that. there's no such thing as consistency in golf either. It's, no. It's always changing, so it's not really achievable. Right. You know, you can, you can try to get, be more consistent right. than you are, but you're not going to be consistent. Right. When it gets to, I, I want to touch a little bit on, because we, we talked a, a little bit about it, uh, practice. <clears throat> What's your philosophy on proper practice? I have one. I want to see what yours is. Are you asking me uh, how, how often they should practice or how they should go about practicing? Both. Well, I mean, I'm all for practicing as much as possible. Right. I mean, if you, if you can do it seven days a week, do it seven days a week. I right. Mean, I know, you know, Hogan would you know, skip a day, would set him back a week. And I remember being just a freak about it when I was in high school and college. Of course, I was kind of OCD about golf back then. Mm -hmm. A little bit in a panic about it because I was, you know, wanting to play professionally. So I would freak out if I couldn't get to the range. I mean, I remember, you know, before I could drive, right? Mom, you got to get me to drive. I can't, I can't, you know, I was finding my timing yesterday. If I don't go today, I'm going to lose it. You know, I was right. always afraid of losing my timing. I had to lock it in. And, you know, back then I was much more of a feel player, mm -hmm. uh, which I w wish I was more now. I think teaching has made me too left brain and technical, you know. But um, but as much as possible. Uh, I, I don't think you can actually practice too much. I, the only time I think you can really over-practice or practice too much is, again, when it's preventing you from getting out on the golf course. And I right. have actually known people. Uh, there was a gentleman that used to practice up at Michael Jordan Golf that got to the point where he could not go on the golf course. Really, he he, he he psyched himself out. He he got so into practicing, he had to get it perfect out there. So he literally could not mentally get himself to go to a course because he knew it, he, it wouldn't be perfect. <laughs> you know, so he he got very OCD about it. So, um, you know, practice as much as possible. And as far as how to practice, well, you know, obviously, sixty five percent of our scores are short game. So you should right. be spending sixty five percent of your time on that, which absolutely nobody does. It's about five. Um, and 43% is putting, you know, and I, I tell my students they should be on a putting green for like three hours a week if they want to be really good. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and putting's not so much getting your perfect technique down, it's time. It's right. It's the time. Um, but I'm a big believer in, um, uh, you know, in, a lot of people will say, you know, you shouldn't do drill. There's, there's teachers that say, oh, drills don't work. You shouldn't do drills. You shouldn't do repetition. You shouldn't do that block practice where you've got like a seven iron in your hand and you're just hitting 107 irons in a row. You know, you should always do random practice. Mm -hmm. I kind of like my students to do a little bit of a mix of both. So if I've worked with them on something on the lesson tee, I want them to come out and spend the first 10 or 15 minutes going through those drills, going through that block practice. And then when they feel like they're getting it at that point, then move into random practice and pick a different club, a different target, go through your pre-shot routine hit the ball, put it back, go get a different club. Um, but, but I do like to them to have some sort of that, uh, you know, block practice just at the beginning. I just mm -hmm. want to make sure they're getting a little bit of concentration there. Right. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's uh -oh. just what I prefer as an instructor. That's 100% exactly what I do. Perfect. How fun is that? So, yeah, no, I make my students, uh, um, I tell them this is how they should spend their hour. Um, number one, always spend at least a half hour on the putting green. I always, I always say if you're going to come down and practice, uh, a minimum of a half hour on the putting green, the other half hour on the driver range. Yeah. Um, now, how often do they actually do that? Probably not as much as I would obviously want them to. But I'm on the same boat. Um, 
block practicing uh, for the first 10, 15 minutes, working on exactly what we want you to do. And if you feel like you've got it, um, go ahead and start going into random practice. The number one thing that people tend to do, um, or complaint, I guess I should say, is, well, I can hit it great on the driving range, but as soon as I get on the golf course, it all right. goes away. Well, if you're just continually hitting one iron the whole entire time at the same target the whole entire time, yeah. what have you it's productively not, it's not done? Golf. It's not yeah. golf. Yeah. So your brain doesn't, when you get on the golf course, it's like, I need my seven iron. It's like, no, you've got to hit your driver now. And you have, and the, the body just doesn't understand that motion. So um, getting into random practice is uh, super huge uh, to help get that, that golf game or that swing onto that golf course. Now there's a lot of mental stuff that we can definitely talk about um, with students when they have uh, mental blocks or you know they feel like they're making the same swing and then uh, they get on the golf course and they just mentally lose it. Uh, Justin Thomas actually this past tournament uh, he was I don't, I don't want to say he was mic'd up it just happened to be the cameras were there, the mics were on, and he hit a shot, and it went, I believe, dead left. And he's walking away, walking to his caddy. He goes, I was too scared to hit it right. Yeah. And fear, how, fear got the best of the them. Fear got the best of them. There is and no fear, but fear itself. Exactly. And that's uh, really huge um, that I'm starting to find with my students and probably the same with yours, is they're so scared mm -hmm. of the good shot that they hit the bad. <laughs> and then they're more worried about hitting the bad shot that they never think of the good. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Right. Um, and that's where on-course lessons are so important. Cause right. Because a lot of that stuff, you don't, you don't get out of them on the driving range as right. a teacher. You try to draw it out of them, but... No. Sometimes they don't discuss it or bring it up, and you don't even know. You know, and then you know. I remember one kid I worked with for like three years, lessons, and finally we found time. You know, and his parents wanted to sign him up for a playing lesson, and I got on the course, and I was like, Oh my gosh! Oh, yeah. What is going on <laughs> out here? You know, like right? No pitching game whatsoever. I'm like, I didn't know you, you never told me you couldn't pitch the ball, or you needed to work on that. You know, right? Uh, he was so consumed with his swing. Right. Perfect. So. And when they get on that, that course, you know, when I do uh, on-course lessons and I do, uh, as, like I said, as much as I possibly can, uh, we'll get on that tee box and I'll, I'll be like, well, what are you thinking about? I see the trees on the right. I feel like I've got to aim this way. And I don't want to go left. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you're not even thinking about a target. You're not thinking about the fairway. You're thinking about everything that could go wrong. Right. And then you're going to try to prevent that from going right. bad. Um, or they're so worried about making good contact. That's my number one. I hate it when people say, I just want to make really good contact. The more, worry, more you worry about making good contact, you're going to do something to alter your swing right. to make sure that you, quote, unquote, hit the ball, right? So it's just uh, the mental game is, is so important that people tend not to think about it as much as they really should. Even as teachers, you know, we want to make your swings great, but we also have to kind of dive into how you think. Right. You know, if you're not thinking clearly, everything that we're going to teach you is not going to translate. Right. 
Right. Or you're just going to be like, ah, I feel way more comfortable going to the old swing. You know? So when I get out on that, that like I said, when I get out there, I start reversing everybody. I say, you know, you can't anticipate a bad shot. If you're anticipating the bad shot, the bad shot's going to show up. Right. Yeah, I agree. So... Um, well, thank you today. You're welcome. For fun. coming in. Uh, we will definitely have her again uh, a little bit farther down the road and uh, ask even more questions. Um, if you do have, happen to have questions, uh, you can go on uh, Boogie Hills Golf Academy Facebook page and ask any questions. Uh, St. Louis Golf Lessons also has a Facebook page. You can go on and ask Maria and any one of her uh, wonderful teachers out there uh, any questions that you may have they are located in south county is yeah, that correct we're, we're kind of everywhere we're, we're um you know mid kind of midtown i call it okay. like big ben golf center we're out west at the landings at spirit um we are at the first tee in vander park which are south county we're gonna be at tower t when it opens and and we do some things at missouri athletic club so awesome we're kind of all around yeah so i highly recommend going uh if you're in those areas uh definitely go out and see her if you're in st charles come see me um if you're from out of state <laughs> uh like I said, even though we're uh, in St. Louis, and I know some of my listeners are from all over the country, uh, you can still send us uh, information uh, about your swing, or if you have questions about the swing, we are going to answer those questions for you, um, and we can even dive in a little bit deeper if you get uh, to that point with videos and things like that. So on that note, once again, thank you again, and uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off and get back to teaching. <laughs>